Hello, everybody, and welcome to Policing a Free Society, a podcast series on the intersections of history and criminal justice. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean for History at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. After two weeks where we discussed current events, we're going to take a step back this week and explain just what's going on here. What you are about to hear was originally going to be the first episode of Policing a Free Society. Jeff Zarnick and I had been developing this series for over a year and had originally conceptualized it as a discussion among a couple of old academics about history, criminal justice, constitutional rights, the justice system, the relationship between people and their leaders, which is probably the oldest discussion in American history. We even laid out an outline for a bunch of episodes where we would tackle specific court cases, constitutional clauses, police procedures, police brutality, police reform, vigilantism, and a bunch of other topics from the lofty academic perspective. But then George Floyd was murdered by police officers in Minnesota on May 25th of this year, after a string of racially-themed conflicts and deaths across the country, and protests broke out in cities around the country and around the world. Suddenly, Americans were talking about constitutional rights, police brutality, police reform, and the justice system in a louder way than they had in a very long time. Jeff and I decided that this was an opportune moment to make the podcast a reality, but it also seemed like the old academic discussion really wasn't going to cut it anymore. To keep up with the quickly changing developments, we decided to switch to a regular roundtable discussion of relevant current events, where we can sprinkle in academic theories and historical contexts here and there. Hence the past two episodes on the death of George Floyd, the rise of protest movements in response, the militarization of the police, and the defund the police reform movement. Now, we haven't forgotten the academic perspective, though, and in future episodes, some episodes will focus less on current events and more on the policies and events that brought us to our current state. We plan to have a mix of styles and formats in the future, and hopefully you'll find them all interesting. In today's episode, Jeff and I are going to introduce ourselves and talk a bit about where we see this going. It's a bit of a rambling conversation, but we introduce and define some of the major concepts that we think will influence this podcast going forward. This is kind of a peek behind the curtain where you can see us thinking through and discussing the scope of the project in almost real time. This will be one of those special features on an old DVD or one of those for subscribers only episodes, if we actually had paid subscribers. Either way, I hope you find this interesting, and I hope you find the series interesting. We should be back next week to talk about whatever developments in policing come between now and then. So so here in this podcast, we're going to be talking about the intersection between criminal justice and history. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of different potential topics here, uh, including things like um, policing, court decisions, constitutional issues. We're going to be talking about the, the historical background of a lot of this stuff. We're going to be talking about the criminal justice perspective on a, little, on a lot of that stuff. So before we get into all of that, let's introduce ourselves a little bit. So Jeff, can you tell us a little bit about you, your background, and how you, know, how you think about all these big issues? Well, I was a police officer for the city of Manchester, New Hampshire Police Department from 1979 to December 14th of 2002. So 23 years there where I had performed a variety of say, duties and tasks. Uh, I spent about five years in an undercover capacity. I did a lot of street work. I was on the mountain bikes, etc., and I really enjoyed my time there. I learned quite a bit and um, was a part, an integral part of the community. So I learned a lot from that. And during that time, it spawned my interest in training and/or teaching, which led me to quote higher education. And I earned my master's degree in human services administration back in the early '90s from Springfield College. And then later on, thinking this uh, might make a great second career, getting involved in. And sticking with, uh, say, criminal justice and all things public safety, I uh, went after and pursued and completed my doctorate in leadership studies with a focus on cultural criminology from Franklin Pierce University. So that is my, quote, professional background. I've done a lot of writing, teaching uh, seminars and training and stuff like that. Uh, but I really enjoy my position over the last few years of, uh, well, say, being in the position of passing the proverbial baton. So those people are interested in, in becoming part of a really a great, honorable, and noble, yet complex and difficult profession. Yeah, that sounds great. The My only experience with criminology was taking an introduction to criminology mm -hmm. course at the community college that I went to back in 
1994, mm-hmm. I think it was. And it was a, it was a really interesting class. It was, the, it was a community college. So they only offered like the one criminology class and the one intro thing. And I ended up going in other directions, but I thought it was a really interesting topic. And I'm glad that we're able to get together to talk about this stuff here. Yes. I am a historian. Uh, my focus in history is modern U.S., uh, basically civil war and reconstruction through the present. My research work has been on immigration studies, uh, but it's also been on legal issues, especially my MA thesis was on California and the 14th Amendment during the re- during the Reconstruction oh, era. Right. So I've got a little bit of a constitutional background here. Basically, my uh, academic background is I got my uh, B- BA and MA in history from California State University in Sacramento um, back at the turn of the century. And then after, and then I went to Ohio State University, or sorry, the, the right, Ohio get it right, State Rob. They're listening right. to you. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's that's in my contract. Um, the Ohio State University for my PhD in history, uh, and again, my dissertation was on uh, modern U.S. history. I was focusing on legal issues, especially uh, policymaking regarding environmental protection. In California and at the national level uh, during the Ronald Reagan years when he was governor of California, uh, because environmentalism was a much more bipartisan issue back then. So, so I got to look at it, kind of the intersection of environmentalism and conservatism and talk about how this used to be a much more bipartisan issue than it is today. So again, my background, I, I've have a very little background in criminology, uh, enough to, you know, get some of the words right, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, in this podcast, we're going to be relying on uh, Jeff to provide the criminology information while I focus on some of the long-term history information. And both of us know a little bit about the other's um, specialties, so I think we're going to have some really interesting conversations here. Oh, yeah. Here. It's going to be a lot, a lot of fun, and there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. And don't don't downplay the fact that you actually had taken a criminology course Um you know, most people are budding criminologists, and that's what I think a lot of the heightened interest in quote the whole system of policing and criminal justice exists. You know, it's the why factor, right? Right? Why do people do bad things? And that really is the that's the underpinnings of all things, say criminology and all the fancy terms and research that may have been done. At the end of the day, it's a very simple question: Why do they do the things that they do? Yeah, and then that gets us to kind of the overall perspective that we are bringing to this podcast is that we are basing this on or basing the title of the of the the podcast policing a free society on a book that was published back in 1977 i believe it was yeah it's uh, been around mm-hmm. Yeah, by a, I believe he's a criminologist, Herman Goldstein, published a mm-hmm. book called uh, Policing a Free Society where he talked about kind of the intersection of or the the central problem of policing in this free nation that, that uh, the United States, where we've got this idea that we've got all these constitutional rights that guarantee freedom to the population. But at the same time, there is a there's kind of an inherent contradiction between granting everybody certain rights, and but then also policing those rights. And so we have this situation where the police in the United States are charged with, in some ways, enforcing an impossible goal <laughs> in some way. And, <laughs> what, um, what makes you say that? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Cause I mean, the, the Goldman in the, uh, or Goldstein, sorry, <laughs> in his, in, in, in his introduction is talking about how the police are kind of an anomaly in a free society because they have a great deal of authority, but there's also a lot of limitations put on the authority through constitutional rights and all of that. And right. that seems to be kind of at the center of all basically everything that police officers have to do. And in by extension, all people in law enforcement, even in like the, you know, the criminal justice and the trial system and all of that, everybody, there's this, this, this tension between protecting people's rights, but also enforcing the law. And I'm sure that that was affecting you during all of your time as a police officer, I'm sure. One, yeah. And, and I'm not alone in that. Now, it's 110% correct. The, the ambiguity in a way, is a, which is a good thing for the American citizen. The fact that we are relatively ill-defined, Rob, relative to what does society actually want as it relates to, say, protection, okay? And that can change literally from person to person, block to block. So I think it's good that we don't have a, let's just say, a standing black and white de- definition of what American policing should do, period. All right? And... Um, and I think that there unto itself 
preserves a lot of the freedoms that people do have. But the conundrum for us coppers, right, out there is, well, what do you want? And that was a daily question. What do you expect? And it can change from day to day. And um, it depends on who you talk to, uh, where they're from. There's so many different things involved relative to an opinion on what policing should do and what they expect uh, that it, 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 um, it, it, like I said, it can have a, a positive and a negative effect at the same time. If we've been trying to strike that balance for, for forever since the inception of policing or call it whatever you want to call it, public safety in the United States, I think it should continue that way, even if it's to the, you know, the, even though it's maybe disconcerting as police departments try to make adjustments based upon what the public wants and how they define policing, because we operate we operate based upon how they define us that day, that moment, and maybe the next day too. And that, uh, to your point, it not to be long-winded about it, but it is. And it really drove me a little bit crazy. Like, well, what do you want? Do you want us to be aggressive? Do you want us to stop people in certain areas? And, you know, how do you, what are the parameters? For that? Who do you want us to stop? You know, who do you want us to arrest? What do you consider to be, you know, effective or ineffective law enforcement? So police departments have gotten better at that. You know, really by gauging and taking the temperature of the sitting public, at least at that particular day, you know, uh, but every, like I said, every town, every community, every city, every block is going to be different in some respects. Would you say that, you know, given that you've, you've, I mean, you've been in the field for a while now, is mm-hmm. there a sense where modern police forces, is there a bit more theoretical thinking behind policing now than there used to be? I mean, is there more kind of a lot of this training? I mean, one of the things that kind of illuminates this is back in going back to the Goldstein book that he talks about how there's, there's this pervasive conflict between crime fighting and constitutional due process um, mm-hmm. that the police are expected to deal aggressively with criminal conduct. But they also have to, you know, hold back. <laughs> they can't. They can't really. The, the yeah. most efficient ways and the most effective ways to deal with crime would cross over a whole bunch of constitutional rights. And yep. so, uh, what? So what, what? What's happening is that you've got police. Yeah, the, the the public is kind of demanding that police do these things, whatever these things are. But basically, go fix the problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but at the same yeah. time, do it without doing X, Y, and Z. Yeah, and do so, no harm, right? <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. And so so uh, have you seen where pol- the police are the, is there more training on that type of because that type of thinking because like you said that p- plagued you during your career and I imagine it plagues every police officer throughout their career. Right. So what kind of training goes into the police officers to kind of think their way through that and kind of come to their conclusions on that? Well, I think it's it can be less about training versus, you know, the advantage of higher education to develop a well-rounded human being that understands the human condition and can offer remedy, be a problem solver. The training part comes uh, really infers more of a, let's just say a regimen where muscle memory is key and critical, making a critical decision to say during firearms training or that type of thing. It is, let's, let's just say this, it's still a very physical job. People still want to hurt you or you mm-hmm. will have to use physical strength to you know, stop a situation from escalating. There's no question about it. Um, but in my time, I have seen the philosophy, you know, the, the training and the philosophy and the balance change remarkably. And what I mean by that is uh, when I first came on the job, predominantly most of the administrators and not to not to denigrate them not to say they were bad many were not educated you didn't have to have much more than a high school diploma at best most of it was military background there was a height requirement of six uh, of six feet plus uh because they still expected you to be I, you know, have a command physical presence out there and if something went awry well you know you resorted to to the physical aspects of the job. And that wasn't that long ago. But what we've seen over the last two to three decades is that that mentality, you know, that philosophy of policing has retired out. And police police departments right now are probably enjoying the highest level of intellectual capital than any time in American policing history. Okay, so basically what you have is a lot, yeah, a lot of police officers out there with higher educations, you know, their associates, bachelors, masters, and some have PhDs, law degrees. It's really something to see right now. Okay, and so with that mindset, you know, those advantages that even that uh, Goldstein had pointed out way back when, those things that needed to be done in order to effectively police a free society with that balanced approach 
that make everyone happy, <laughs> um, you're, you're, start, you're seeing a greater acceptance and a greater, uh, let's say, involvement and deployment of these things. And what I mean by that is that philosophy, you know, the higher education, they encourage and or they mandate uh, some form of higher education, college background, because they know they have, you know, a, a good a good sampling of liberal arts, et cetera, all those things that create a more a better thinker. All right. So they have that, but they have also they've also accepted the use of predictive analytics and or say data analysis. They say statistics. And, uh, you know, we never heard that when I when I when I first started policing. And it took a very long time, I think, up into very recent history where my home agency here which is actually a pretty good size agency. It's doing 300, 300 people, 250 sworn, uh, very busy city. Uh, they, they utilize things that we didn't even talk about, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago to, to be effective. Uh, many, you know, the acceptance of community policing. You know, people said, well, isn't that the greatest thing since sliced bread? That was a very hard sell for a lot of agencies. And a lot of agencies got it wrong because of that old philosophy of policing, of command, control, authority, and power, right? Uh, but they're re- you know, we're, we're starting to see a major change relative to that philosophy. And and it is, I think, part and parcel to the fact that many, that mentality is pretty much either retired in or died out. Okay. Yeah, we will. Um, I think we'll probably probably devote an entire episode at some point to community policing because that seems to have been a pretty big shift in policing. But it's also a shift, I think. And you may have more. To, you will have more to talk about it later. But uh, it also has a shift in the relationship between the police and the people, mm-hmm. um, which gets us back to the whole balance between rights and all of that stuff again. So, yes, we're going to have a lot to talk about, and I think. Um, to make clear going forward in future episodes, this is not necessarily going to be a, you know, a rah-rah police oh, <laughs> type God, situation no. here. Yeah. We want the, this is going to be, we want to talk about issues like police brutality. We want to talk about Absolutely. The, 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 the good stuff, the bad stuff, everything in between. Um, we're planning to do some episodes on, they're going to focus on again, police brutality, kind of um, police overreach, but we're also going to spend episodes talking about how, you know, prosecuting offenders, uh, people that are accused of crimes, defending themselves, the various constitutional amendments that, and the constitution itself that lends itself to defending people from uh, being charged for crimes and all of that. So we're going to try to approach this in various episodes uh, from all angles, because we want to get a full understanding of how criminal criminology, criminal justice and history can all work together to hopefully explain where we are today. Uh, Because almost every aspect of our lives in some way is governed by the legal system. I mean, we all just driving to work. <laughs> we're all involved with the legal system. Even if we're not getting pulled over, there's still all kinds of, you know, the laws we have to obey and all of that. And so there's, this is affecting everybody's lives every day. And so hopefully we can provide a, a longer term kind of perspective on a lot of these issues here. So that's the ultimate goal with all of this. That's a great, and, and that's a great point, Rob. I think part of this, if we can really educate the, the, the public, what I found is that a lot of people really don't know what their rights are. You know, yeah. and I'll be honest with you, the police on mass, we would love to have an enhanced understanding and acceptance of what the amendments, the Constitution, what their rights are, as opposed to what we're seeing, which is basically deferring interpretation of any action taken by the police to the system of lawyers. You know, uh, if people really understood their rights and the impact of the amendments on, like you said, their your daily activities in this country. OK, the Constitution is sitting in the same room with you every day, every day. And um, a lot of people don't really know that. So it'd be good to enlighten them. Yeah, because everybody's heard the, you know, <laughs> what is the, the thing, you know, law and order. Every time someone gets arrested, they got the right to a right to, you know, right to your remain silent and all of that. But that's at this point, it's kind of a cliche. So, yeah, I think it'll be good for us to go through, even if we go end up going amending my amendment to talk about how these things affect people. Whether they are involved in the legal system or not, I mean, all of all of these things affect me sitting here in Ohio. Oh, yeah. They affect you sitting there in Manchester, and so these these things are affecting everybody all across the country. And so I think we're we'll have a lot to uh, discuss here. Absolutely, and we will not remain silent. No, <laughs> <laughs> this would be the worst podcast ever yeah, if we all pleaded the fifth. Is, no, no, it's one thing about cops, you know. To be all kidding aside, we're we are full of hot air. No, we love communication. <laughs> the thing about it, Rob, you can't do this job if you, if you don't like people. You have to love people at their worst, you know, and um, I don't know if a lot of people understand those things, you know, and just as they don't may 
you know, it may not under, understand their rights, et cetera, but they don't necessarily understand police mentality, you know, or what, you know, the, the nobility and the honor the profession really brings and, and there's some very good people out there. And there are some people that don't belong on the job. There's no question about it. We need to talk about those things and why, why do some people don't belong quote, on the job? Why are they there? How did they get there? And what are they still doing there? That type of thing. So we definitely want to be in a position where we can repair, remedy, fix, and, and do the best we, you know, the best we possibly can, you know, for the, uh, well, for the American people, to be honest with you. Since we're talking about criminal justice, can you give us a quick or maybe even long, depending <laughs> on how in depth you want to go. Yeah. Uh, just the introduction to what what is the, the field of criminal justice? What are the parameters of it? What is what are the overall themes of this of the, of this field of study in in your mind? Well, I can tell you this as a developer for SNU Global for the initial criminal justice program. Now we're going into a new development which is a different story, but it does relate to the things we're talking about in terms of in a very amorphous, somewhat ill-defined practice, profession, discipline, art form. Uh, there is and has been standing definitions of criminal justice by a variety of academic, uh, academics. And I'll read you one, and I think it pretty much sums it up. It uh, Criminal justice refers to America's overarching system of police, courts, and jails, it includes all of the institutions of a government aimed at upholding social control, deterring and mitigating crime, and sanctioning those who violate laws. So, and there's a lot of loaded phrases, terminology, or terms in there that is nothing but it, it, it really is the fodder for the confusion that I think a lot of uh, people in our country have relative to what this actually means for them. And that's, uh, you know, it, we're a somewhat ill defined. Because we're in a free society, we are very ill-defined. It's not like uh, a surgeon has to cut a certain way and a plumber has to turn the, uh, the, the, the screw of the nut a certain way. That doesn't apply you know, to this profession because we're dealing with behaviors and we're dealing with uh, – we were talking earlier about – American history and how the context of expectations of social control, safety, service, all that change and changes all the time. We're in the middle of that again, you know. Um, so it's, I won't say this, I know that there's not one standing definition, Rob, of criminal justice. It really, in some respects, is in the eye of the beholder at the time they're interacting with a representative of the system. Okay. Uh, expectations of police can, as we spoke, I think about this before, can change from block to block. Courts and the people who staff the courts, your judges have different viewpoints relative to behavior. Jails are not all the same. They're run differently. They have different programs or whatever. So, and it is all, it, it, it all relates to expectations at that time of the people that the system is in service to. Uh, you know, and, and it can be misinterpreted. It can be interpreted correctly. It all really depends on the time of day and where you are. I think this is going to make an interesting mix because history in some ways is a lot like what you're talking about there because it is open to interpretation. It is the study of human behavior and humans do not behave rationally. <laughs> we, we like to think that they do right. or, you know, we like to think that, you know, we act rationally ourselves, but collectively human behavior is very hard to predict. But uh, there, that's kind of the story of history also is that we're trying to figure out why have people acted the way they did in the past. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's going to be, a, this is going to create a lot of interesting overlap because, uh, people act legally and they act illegally, but criminal justice, as I understand it is also, it's not just the, about the punishment of people who violate the laws, right. there is also a interest in the people who obey the laws. And there's, uh, it's not, I mean, I, 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 obviously the people that break the laws are going to get more attention, I suppose. But mm -hmm. I think we will be able to talk about the stuff that's happening that isn't 
involving criminal justice, right. I hope, will also bring into this too. But uh, yeah, it, it's interesting to think that criminal justice, the field that 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 as we're going to talk about it here, is really not just about arresting people and putting them in jail. It's going to be about kind of the long process of uh, we're, we want to talk about uh, you know the original law breaking and the rest and all that too. But we do want to talk about the 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 court system and how people go through that system. And then we, we will hopefully also talk about when people are in jail, how are they behaving in jail? And so we'll be able to talk about kind of that perspective. But my my reason for being here is to try to bring in the history, the kind of the general right. historical context for this stuff. So when you're talking about crim specific criminal activities happening in, in, I don't know, the 1970s, the 1980s, or last week, Hopefully, I'll be, that kind of my my goal is to then be able to contribute to kind of the general trends in American history, what's going on politically, socially, culturally, uh, that may be influencing that or could be going counter to that. We, we may run into situations where there's criminal activity happening and we have no idea what the connection is to the, what's happening in the, big, the bigger picture. Correct. So I think this is going to be able to allow us to create a lot of interesting discussion, hopefully, about... Um, the the relationship between history and criminal justice. And so you had mentioned that um, criminal criminologists, uh, you know, to use kind of the generic term for people that study criminal justice, mm -hmm. um, you have a lot of interests, obviously. But you were you've mentioned in previous conversations that criminal criminologists' interpretations of crime have changed over time. Yes, and so can you t talk a little bit about that? In what ways have they changed? What how? What are the topics of study for criminologists? How have those changed? How have their interpretations of those studies changed over time? What what have you seen in your work? Well, a second, any other particular art form or science is always going to be some advances, you know, in their ability to try to gather or gain understanding of why something is happening. You know, uh, I think probably the most difficult, as you mentioned before, Rob, the, the most difficult area of, of study, I think, is is human behavior. Because it really is largely, and as I've seen, either as a police officer or turned academic, is very, very difficult to do. We would like to say things happen because of one or two things. We love, we have a, you know, we're driven to simplicity relative to explanations and what we should do about something. But as the field of, you know, the study of human behavior, under the umbrella of, say, psychology, you know, criminologists are out there trying to figure out and hopefully, you know, winning the next Pulitzer Prize by saying, if you know, the, these people do this because of this, now you should do that. And as I was mentioning before, that's a very, very powerful role that they play in the criminal justice arena. They're behind the scenes. In some respects, they're not necessarily all that accountable. You know, they're bringing forth their knowledge, their research. I'm not saying it's invalid or whatever, uh, but Contextually, it all depends on on where they're at relative to the understanding of human behavior, and that's changed over decades. You know, doctors have become better as criminologists, in many respects, I think, have become better at understanding and analyzing behavior so they can make recommendations. And that's what I mean by when I was saying they're very powerful. These recommendations manifest themselves in policy and practice. The expectations of the police on all the things we do, what we like to deploy and how we manage things preemptive, preemptively or whatever it may be, you know, how we do those things uh, really lar rests largely upon criminological theory that's accepted and practiced at that time, and that could change tomorrow. Uh, once we, especially when we find out if what has been done is not necessarily effective, you're seeing that right now, Ron. With the you know a, you know anytime a, you know these cataclysmic events are come up, you know there's a rush to the table to say it's because of this. In other words, the mass shootings, you know, and everyone, someone would like to come forward and say definitively it is this, and we know that it's not the case. But when you're trying to build a headline and you're trying to grab the microphone, you're trying to uh, you know create an agenda or a decision to be made about that behavior, you know, it's much too easy. We have to be very, very careful of saying it is definitively that. We know that it's not. 
We know there's a variety of reasons going on. It's very complicated. And it, you can't just rest one particular, say, criminological theory. You can't you know, hang your hat on that, you know, that it's because of bad parenting or it's a biological issue or it's, you know, economic deprivation. I mean, there's so there is a violent video, violent games. video games, social media. You know, you can't people would love to say it's one or the one of the above when, in fact, it may be a lot of those things. But we don't really know. And I think that's 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 at the baseline of the frustration for the general public, victims, families, et cetera, but for the police as well. Uh, you know, we you know, we have to we have to react, respond, create practice and plan and policy lest these things should happen. You know, but we our job, too, is also the, the call for the system is to try to intercept or interrupt before these things occur. Very, very hard to do. Uh, very difficult to do, um, you know, and, uh, and you know, we, 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 I think we've done a very good, I think the system has done a, a good job as best it possibly can based upon what a free society expects of us. In other words, you know, there's a huge Second Amendment argument here on the table, okay, uh, you know, and, and other things. So it's a very complicated arena. Criminologists in summation do have a very, very they have a very loud voice relative to what the system will do. I say the criminal justice system and all the components, what we'll do, what we should do, or what we won't do. Uh, and it also affects the general public because some of these things, these ideas and assets or reactions or policies can cost money. You know, um, just sidebar note, I mean, a lot of people, you know, you'll have criminological theory say, you know, we, well, we need enhanced guardianship, you know, watchmanship in our neighborhoods. Well, what does that mean? Well, we need more people. <laughs> right so the, 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 there's that but you as a historian will say you know what but let's take a look at history and the economic you know uh like say the economic cycles in the united states have directly affected policies that relates to expectations right now can we can can we do this oh not at this time it's the depression right so yeah, and even beyond, uh, you know, hiring additional police officers, the other option would be going with um, the British model of the closed circuit TV cameras um, that I think we've talked about in other conversations where, um, you know, you basically put a camera in every public space, but that also is, that that's also a cost. You still have to pay for the technology, you'd have to pay for the people watching the TVs. <laughs> and so it is, it, it can be an expensive proposition. Um when you've got and and going along with kind of the economic cycles, there's also just kind of the general issues of taxation that go along yes. with that. Is have, what are people willing to pay in taxes to pay for that kind of mm -hmm. stuff? Because it's not just police, that, police or law enforcement that's competing for those tax dollars. It's also schools and everything else that's competing for tax dollars. And so there's a finite amount of money that you know Americans are traditionally willing to pay in taxes. That that finite amount fluctuates varies from time to time place to place but it's not going to cover everything <laughs> no it's not and and it, it reminds me of something that uh neil i think his name is neil degrassi who's a a brilliant man and he said he tried to put it in statistical perspective relative to the chance of what someone being shot or killed at a mass shooting compared to other activities where death results, he said it's actually quite minimal. He, he took it on the chin for that. People say, well, how dare you, you know, kind of minimalize this. And he really wasn't. He said, no, you know, I know that you're going to, you're going to be on all, you're going to be all over this. There'll be resources deployed, all these things we've just talked about, Rob. There'll be a reaction to this. But in some respects, statistically, there may be an over an overreaction to something like this. And that that what that brings to the table is fear and the perception of fear and the research has shown this the perception of fear in this country is actually uh so it's inaccurate in other words people uh they're there people are fearful of criminal activity or becoming a victim when if you looked at this quantitative statistic relative to your chances of being victimized in most areas or many areas of this country is is almost a negative in some respects uh, you know and but however the industry the fear has generated an industry it's generated policy you know and it's very easy to manipulate right so it, it brings a lot of things to the table and it does speak back to you know uh, uh, the criminological theory and you you know more probably about, about the statistics than I do, but based on kind of the conventional wisdom, mainstream knowledge, I mean, general crime rates have come down fairly dramatically yes. since the what was it, the 1980s, I think it was, was the high point or a high point. 
And so if, if, if criminal or if crime statistics are coming down, it's, it's kind of hard to say, and maybe you know more about this, but is it, is, is it just transitioning towards these very dramatic, but isolated events like, you know, school shootings or the shootings in Dayton and all that earlier in August? Um, Is it becoming just, is our perception being colored more because these are isolated but dramatic moments? Because I guess from from a historical perspective, it's kind of hard to reconcile the two, that there is this growing fear of crime at the same time the statistics are going down. And so there's been a lot of thought about, you know, is it it because the media are sensationalizing things or is there is there an actual more chance of dying in, in mass shootings? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, no, and that's just it. And that's, that is a never-ending quest that the, this, this, we involved in the system are trying to respond to. But our best response is to say, we don't know. It's one thing or another. We don't know. We, to say it's this or that is, is, is very, very dangerous. It's dangerous. Because if they say, well, it's, you know, it, just say hypothetically, you know, a renowned criminologist or somebody comes out with a position authority says it's social media and we need to restrict it to people of this age group, of this ilk, who have been maybe diagnosed with this or suspected to have a personality disorder. Okay. Now, now that's where this free society thing comes in, which is, you know, in, enforced and endorsed by the language of the Constitution. Wait a minute. Uh, what, 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 even if I have a problem, that I'm being treated for. Why can't I access blank? You know, are you restricting my freedoms? You know, so there's a, there's a big picture at hand here, uh, you know, on the table uh, relative to, quote, what we want to consider, what we're willing to give up or not to maintain what we consider to be a free society where we're, you know, unimpeded, do as we see fit without doing harm. There's a lot on the table. So to oversimplify it, Rob, is very dangerous regardless of the activity. You know, yes, mass shootings, you know, statistically, there isn't a definitive uptick. And everyone should be aware. Everyone should be, quote, on, on, you know, be, to be guarded, to be cognizant, uh, cognizant of your surroundings, et cetera, you know, to be maybe more apt to report behaviors that may appear to be abnormal some certain trigger behaviors that might lead to a problem. Uh, People have done that and they've done quite well with that. There have been a number of, you won't hear about them per se, interrupted episodes where someone did say, you know what, from what I understand, you know, about behavior and what I've read and what I've learned, this person over here, it may be a candidate for something really bad and I will report them. And hopefully the system (laughs) is the other part of it. Will the system be able to respond? Now, when you look at the mass shooting in El Paso, if I'm not mistaken, it's the, the mother of that boy, the shooter, alerted the police before it happened. I think my, my son is going to have a pro- there's going to be a problem. Uh, and that's not the first time that's happened. But here's the problem with, it, you know, that how one reports something to the police is very, is, is almost a science unto itself to get the police to react based upon what their expectations are, right? Um, because if they field, they field calls or information about everyone who's appearing to be crazy and they followed up on every one of those things, you know, they have to have some sort of judgment as to what they should do, how they should react. Do they interfere or impede or obstruct someone's freedom because someone said that guy's crazy, right? And that's really very, very difficult to do. Um, you know, and you have, uh, you know, you have uh, entities like the ACLU, whether you like them or not, you know, they're looking at what civil liberties and everyone has them, whether you're crazy or not. And so the, you know, right. You have it. You, you can walk up and down. The, you know, I, I was shocked. You can walk up and down the street, the main drag in Manchester, New Hampshire, Elm Street with an ax over your shoulder. Now, there, yeah. Well, in fact, there's a number of YouTube videos where uh, I think it was some gun ownership rights advocate group, anti-police group, you know, uh, were carrying in broad daylight, you know, like 44 magnums on their hip. You know, so, you know, you had people walking down the street going, oh, my God, what is this? You know, who is this person? Wyatt Earp? Who is that? You know, it, you know, people are fearful. It puts people in fear. However, it's okay for them to do that. Naturally, it created a police response and the police, you know, 
made sure that they were legitimate and all that sort of thing, but they could not impede or interfere with their with their mobility. They can't say, stop, I'm detaining you because I suspect you of a crime when they haven't committed one, but they're walking around with a, with a gun. You know, and to me, I say to myself, common sense, why would you do that unless you're trying to create a scenario? And to me, you know, you know, conversationally, geez, that's a little crazy. But it, right? And, but we're not, you know, how, how do you predict that that person's going to walk down the street and start shooting people? Well, I don't know. <laughs> right? And that's a, that's a huge conundrum. Huge. Kind of the, the central kind of issue at play there, which goes back to, you know, the very <laughs> creation of the U.S. Constitution is how do we balance the rights of the individual with the rights of the, of the many? And because it's on the one hand, yes, the individual has the right to carry the gun. However, you know, the other, other people also have the right to feel, you know, safe and secure because they don't know what that guy with the gun is going to do with it. And so there's, there's, a, there's uncertainty there. And so we always have, we like to have this idea that, you know, you have the right to do whatever you want until it interferes with someone else's rights. Well, but that's, mm-hmm. it's not because there's no overt act where one is infringing on the rights right. of another, but there's this air of uncertainty and anxiety and that we can't really quantify that when it comes to an individual right, because do I have the right to, you know, to eliminate uncertainty around me? Well, (laughs) that's, that's hard to enforce. Um, So if I'm the, so if I get nervous because someone has a gun standing next to me at line at Taco Bell or something, then, you know, what right do I have to try to make that person stop holding the gun or or whatever it is. And so it's, this is, the, the balance or, you know, lack of balance <laughs> that, that has never been really been resolved. And I guess that's kind of at the core of what, what criminologists are kind of studying is had is balancing individual rights with group rights and all of that. And it's a never ending battle because we have this wonderful document called the constitution, which is subject to uh, historically right up is subject to interpretation based upon the, what, whatever's going on contextually in reality, whatever's going on that day is going to influence how the constitution is going to be interpreted. And the, the people say, well, it's, it's the Supreme court that, you know, relies on the constitution to interpret, ta- interpret cases. Well, first of all, they only see 90 a year out of 7,000 that are filed. That is the last court of record. That's it. But you know who really is responsible for interpreting the constitution correctly every single time? The police. We, they have, you know, they have to interpret it. We have to know the constitution and how to apply it. You know, all the amendments and the protections awarded accorded thereof at that time, based upon policy, which is, you know, grounded again, back in criminological theory at that time. So all these things are flying at, you know, the police officer or officers that are maybe called to a situation like that. They have to make a decision, but they have to make a decision. Okay. That protects the constitutional rights of the person with the gun or the ax or whatever you want to call it, however they're behaving. They can do that. I was talking to one of my uh, former colleagues who's still on the job. In fact, he left NYPD to come to Manchester and he is, uh, he was lamenting to me. He says, you know what? He's involved. He's in the community policing unit. And he says, you know, there are a lot of complaints downtown where there are scores of restaurants, et cetera. A lot of complaints by the owners of the restaurants, clientele, you know, and people that would like to utilize some of the, the uh, sitting benches or whatever in the downtown parks, you know, when they have their lunch, a lot of businesses, et cetera. He says, Jeff, the ACLU, and I'm, again, this is not denigrating their efforts, it, but the ACLU will not let us. They have taken, you know, they take this to court. They don't let us move these people along. They're not doing anything, quote, wrong, but you're going into a restaurant. You own a restaurant, as an example, and you've got a disheveled drug addict who's standing by the door. Hopefully, you know, either he's panhandling or she or whatever, and, and you, as bad as it is, and it's an awful thing that they're involved, they're, they're in that condition, okay? I mean, what rights do you have as a client, pedestrian, business owner to say, I don't want this, okay? However, now we're talking public way, public sidewalk, all these things come in, so they call the police. Now, Officer Rob's called there, and, it, you know, the owner comes out and said, Rob, I want you to move these two drug addict ne'er-do-wells from my door. Well, they're on, are they blocking anything? No. Are they on public sidewalk? Yes. 
do yep do they are they disheveled and is their hygiene less than desirable yes you know is it uh, is, is it a problem for you well yes it is because my customers are afraid to come here i'm sorry there's nothing i can really do i can ask them to move along but i guarantee that i'm i'm going to be treading on thin constitutional ice when it happens so he was telling me how much of a problem it is for them to do that and so recently, the police department here in Manchester, and they had the hands full last night, you know, balancing those, the balancing act with the president at the SNU arena, you know, with thousands of people in and out and protesters, et cetera. They had, you know, they had to definitely handle those very delicate constitutional situations every second they were there. So recently, the police department said, you know, well, why don't we do this? We'll allay some fear by adding guardianship. And you mentioned cameras. So they wanted to install cameras downtown, much like I was telling you before the London police have been doing for decades. And naturally, they were the ACL fought, they fought them. And they, but apparently, within the last couple of days, I'll confirm this the court has rejected the argument that it's an invasion of privacy. Uh, you know, so these things are always roiling and boiling, Rob, whether it's 1910. 1935 or 2019, there's always this constant roiling tempest of analysis and discussion, debate, decisions that were right yesterday are wrong today. <laughs> you know, and, and it it it's a very difficult situation, but it's the best, it's the worst best system you could have, because at least it's sub is well, it's subject to debate. It's subject to utilizing the court system, right? The court system is a great place to air your grievances. Right. If you think you've been wronged or whatever, you can have, you know, you have that uh, mediation, whatever you want to call it. You have the opportunity to have your, your, your grievances heard. Thank God, because not every country is like that. But does it create, a, you know, a, a, this quandary, this daily issue? Or, you know, of course. And it's always going to be that way always and that's just that's who we are as a country <laughs> yeah and even if i mean the, if using the example of you know the the vagrant outside of a restaurant or something there one side may feel more sympathetic to one's to you know some the, the public may be more sympathetic to one side over the other but that same situation presents itself in a whole lot of different contexts even outside of you know calling the police because there's someone outside of a restaurant if you think about things like protests outside of planned parenthood where you've got, it's, 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 you know, it's more of a, you know, it may not be a vagrant panhandling in front of the, in front of the place. It could be something that's more politically motivated, having someone standing outside of a Planned Parenthood trying to prevent people from going inside or whatever. But it's a similar situation where, because you call the police to try to clear the, the protesters out of the way. And, you know, what, what are the police supposed to do? They're, 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 they're stuck in the middle between this concept of whose rights are take, take precedence. And so, uh, you know, are they going to remove those protesters or are they going to allow them to stay in place to harass all the people that are going in and out of the out of the um, out, out of the out of Planned Parenthood? And so, you know, you'll have court decisions or you'll have local, you know, local governments may pass legislation about protesters have to stay X number of feet away from the door or something like that, which can try to kind of chart a middle ground between the two. Because you've got you've got the rights of the two groups, and so you want to create a balance between the two, and so maybe separate them by a specific number of feet or something. That might work in the short term, but you know that still is not going to be a permanent solution usually, because someone is someone can take it upon themselves to violate that, and it can it it's it's not always a solution, even though it's kind of an attempt to try to thread that needle. Well, people <laughs> will always test. Right. And but but relative, you know, you set setting stipulations and parameters around what people can do in a certain situation does require careful legal analysis. Can we do that? Are we allowed? To, is this what the public wants? You know, statutorily, does it allow us to do this or will we have lawsuits? You know, what are that one of their freedoms in this this particular context? You know, when I think about all the strike details I used to work when I was a police officer, you know, those could be pretty tough. They were pretty volatile. And this, this country has had, uh, as you know, sorry to preach the converted, you know, a long history of labor strife, union action, a lot of violence, a lot of strike breaking, et cetera. Uh, you know, so there's a, I worked at, you know, all the preceding episodes that led up to the times I was working the strike, working these strikes, uh, I recall, you know, laid the groundwork for contextual interpretation of what should be done, what can be done relative to the activities of, say, 
labor activists or whatever, or people, you know, and that, like you point to Rob, that can change tomorrow. You know, in other words, they can, we want them to stay 15 feet away and that doesn't violate their constitutional rights. Well, tomorrow, you know, uh, the ACLU took uh, took us to court, and now we allow, we have to allow them complete access. Things can change overnight. Uh, again, though, any of those decisions, Rob, are always a backdrop of interpretation. Is the is the Constitution? What are we? What are they allowed to do? And what are we allowed to do about it in case it something changes or they violate a statute or a code? Right, and that's the tricky thing about civil rights is that you know from a <laughs> ideological political perspective. It feels like, you know, we always want to classify things like like the ACLU. Um, You know, on the on the one Mm -hmm. hand, you've got ACLU is promoting or or is in favor of, you know, um, abortion rights, uh, which makes liberals like them and conservatives hate them. But then on the other hand, the ACLU also takes on cases to protect gun rights, (laughs) which makes conservatives mm-hmm. like them, yeah. makes liberals hate them. And so it, and the ACLU, I'm just using this kind of a stand-in for civil rights in general, because civil rights are not really a partisan thing. The interpretation of the rights is a partisan right. thing. And that's the difficulty, right. it seems, for police and for criminal just, and criminologists in general is trying to navigate that the, those different interpretations. Because we, in, in, in a way, criminal justice, in a, one of the ways that it's like history is that there is a group, there's a common group of commonly accepted facts. You know, this happened at this time to this person. Um, but the right. interpretation of what that means, why did it happen, um, what is that? is that that's the basis of history and, and that's kind of the basis of criminology too because you know, our job is not just to collect and recite facts it's to come up with a story as to why things happened the way they did and and that interpretation changes over time there's a whole subset of history called historiography which i won't bore everybody with but right. it's the but historians historical historians interpretations of the past have changed and Criminologists, I'm sure that have a similar thing where for history, um, you know, for if you're talking about uh, things like Reconstruction, I mean, some historians in the writing in the 19 teens thought that Reconstruction was happened or Reconstruction failed after the Civil War. It failed to create an an equal society. Uh, the old interpretation was that because it went too far in giving black people rights and black people, according to that interpretation, right. black people were inferior. And so black people naturally overstepped and everything came crashing down around them. Well, that 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 historical interpretation held for a while until you get to the civil rights era. Right. You've got a new generation of historians who kind of take the other side of it saying, no, Reconstruction failed to create a perfect racial society because it didn't go far enough in giving black people rights. And so that mm-hmm. interpretation, that historical interpretation changes why things happen. There is no absolute why. And this is one of the things I always tell my students because they always like to present the why things happen like it's some sort of a fact. When the reality is that, no, there is no def- definitive why something happened. There's always stuff going on that you can't predict, that you don't know. Um, it's You can make a best guess as to why something happened. Anything you take any event, criminal, criminal related or not, if you want to figure out why it happened, there is no absolute why it happened. It's always basically based on, you know, I've got this evidence that tells me this is probably why it happened. And I think it happened because of this, but none of us can say with absolute certainty. And I think that's the same problem or the same kind of situation that criminologists are in. So you criminologists, I think, play a little bit more of an influential role, especially with politicians and legislators and all of that, because they want to solve crime problems. <laughs> and history is, yeah. um, you know, people people like history and we're respected in, in, in some ways. But I think criminologists, there's, you, there's a little bit more of, I think... I think you might say that that it might be overstated the amount of science that's in criminology uh, based on our previous discussions. But uh, there is kind of a sense among the popular public and legislators and all that that criminology is more of a science than history. Um, but I don't know if that's true. I think it feels like there's that, you know, it's basically we're both kind of cr- like collecting oh, yeah. evidence and trying to yep. figure out where does that evidence lead us. But None of us can say for sure why something happened the way it did. You can't predict why someone went on a shooting rampage and why someone else didn't. You can make best guesses, 
but there's no factual absolute reason why that person did it. Even if that person leaves a manifesto, um, you can't always be totally sure that's exactly totally why that person did it. And it's the same that we same problem we have in history. We, you know, when we've got people saying that, oh, you know, even if someone wrote a, I don't know, a diary entry saying, oh, I passed this or I, I introduced this bill into Congress for this reason. Yeah, yep. people aren't always honest with themselves. And so it's always hard to say <laughs> that's exactly, yes, that's the absolute reason why. There's pro- there may be other stuff in play also. And, that, and, and so <laughs> I think one of the things that always frustrates people when they talk to historians is that, you know, they'll ask why something happened. And universally, the response is almost always, well, it's complicated. <laughs> and that's really frustrating <laughs> to people. And I imagine that probably happens with criminologists also. It does. But the thing is, I, I don't think you can really, or we shouldn't separate history and the understanding of our history and behavioral theory. I don't think we should at all, to be honest with you. I mean, uh, with the recent shooting of the six police officers in Philadelphia in a very, in a, in a tough neighborhood, you know, say, let's call it economically deprived neighborhood, right? Let's just say that. And it's populated by minorities. So we leave it at that. So, well, you know what? That didn't happen yesterday. Okay. You know, the thoughts, the feelings, the behaviors, you know, the reactions of people living in that area did, did not manifest itself yesterday over breakfast. You know, one of the, a great book that I read a while ago is called Why Nothing Works. And the author talks about the, the disruption, dissolution, and, uh, you know, destruction of the American black family at the, during the, uh, at the late part of the 18, uh, late, late part of the 1800s, early 1900s, when, as you know, uh, many, many Africans had, African Americans had migrated to the cities to work in the factories. And many, if not most of them, had very, very good jobs. The black family was intact. Many of them assumed managerial positions. And apparently, they were dislocated or d- taken away. Those jobs were taken away from them in favor of white immigrants who were coming over from Europe or Eastern Europe, whatever it may. So there was this disruption. And then they compounded that with uh, welfare. And a distribution, a distribution of WIC or welfare, okay, to families that required this now that so many were out of work. But from what I read, that a stipulation of that, if you're going to get money from the government to to to, uh, to exist and survive, you cannot have a male rep- a male in the household. So men had to leave, husbands had to leave, so their families could survive. So I look at what's going on in some of the neighborhoods today. I really. History is a chain link fence. You can't say it happened yesterday or we have the results of today. uh, The results of today have a direct correlation to what happened, you know, a hundred years ago. Uh, And a lot of things have not changed. You know, that cycles, the cycles of poverty have not been changed, et cetera. And then you meant you talked about uh, contextual perception of people in, well, in these areas, right? Are may, because of economic deprivation, i.e., other and other forms of theory that said this will happen or they'll do this because of that. There is some element of truth to those, especially in my world, if you combine them. And you, uh, you know, so what happens is now you have people resorting to opportunities, and opportunities may be crime. So when you have that now, you thrust in the police and the police say, and so the, the clarion cries, well, we need social control. So the majority of your deployment personnel are assigned to those areas, okay, that historically have been dismantled, disrupted, and have experienced severe socioeconomic decline, you know, a breakdown of their school system, a variety of those complexities you were just talking about. It's not just one thing, but it is an accumulation of things that have occurred over the last several decades or beyond in this country. And so when I saw that, I said, you know what, I'm, I'm shocked. It's awful, but I'm not surprised. You know, uh, so it is a very, very complex issue. And I don't want to sound like I'm oversimplifying it at all. But those are the things that goes off in my mind, being, you know, fully immersed in this field as to, gee whiz, what went wrong. Right. And so, yeah, we've got the intersection of lots and lots of history because, yeah, you've got the po- you've got poverty stuff, you've got you've got welfare, uh, you've got redlining, you've got you know segregation, the, the kind of the, the lingering uh, effects of segregation and the lack of wealth accumulation and all of that. So, yeah, you've got all of this stuff, which 
has a whole lot of historical baggage with it coming together to form a problem for criminologists. And so I think that's mm-hmm. going to be kind of where we, I think that should be where we're going to start this. And then going forward in future episodes, we're going to start talking about specific issues, things like police brutality, uh, various constitutional yep. rights, uh, crime victims' rights, um, you know, the, the judicial system, guilty until proven innocent uh, or innocent until proven guilty, depending how you want to look at it. <laughs> um, and yeah. uh, so I, I think this is a good starting point. And I think we can probably end it here and we will come back next time and start talking about some specific issues. Very good. Thank you. All right. Thank you for joining me, Jeff, and I will see you next time. Thank you. Have a good day. And thank you for listening today. Join us next week where we will bring back Jonathan Wesley to discuss whatever happens between now and then. Policing a Free Society is distributed on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, SoundCloud, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes of Policing a Free Society, and you'll get to hear all of the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any other Working Historians podcast, send us a message at workinghistorians at gmail.com or through our Twitter feed at workhistorians. For Jeff Zarnack, I'm Rob Denning. Stay safe and healthy, and we'll talk at you again soon.